You're listening to the Vol Basketball Fever Podcast, your source for news, discussion, and debates about the Vols and Lady Vols basketball programs. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else podcasts are found. Hello, everyone, and welcome in to another episode of the Vol Basketball Fever Podcast. I am Nathaniel Rutherford, joined by Gene Henley, and we're so glad to have you all back in here for another episode after another Tennessee basketball game. And as we're recording this, the Lady Vols are playing, and currently they're dominating Texas A&M. So it's been a pretty good week for Tennessee basketball on the men's women's side. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you're watching this on YouTube, thank you for that, and and, and subscribe to the channel while you're here. Like this video. Go ahead and leave a comment down below if you you know, have any takes or any opinions on anything we have to say here and you know share this with your friends and family if you're just listening to the audio be sure and again subscribe wherever you find podcasts uh, leave us a five-star review on apple and spotify now as well and yeah just share this with your friends and family if you're a tennessee fan or know anybody else who likes basketball or just likes college basketball doesn't even have to be a tennessee fan let them know and yeah, we really appreciate it you can find us on twitter and facebook at vol hoops fever on twitter and we're vol basketball fever on facebook well gene uh you take wins however you can get them, but it certainly wasn't pretty for Tennessee basketball on, on a Wednesday night hosting Ole Miss. And Ole Miss team that was uh, a little battered by COVID and, and their leading scorer, Jarkel, Jarkel Joyner, uh, was out with a back injury. But you would have known it, by the way, they're playing at, you know very similar to what Tennessee did when they played Alabama, went on the road and gave the home team a lot of fits, even though you were shorthanded due to injury and COVID. Uh, Ole Miss... Well, their defense did play well. I'll give, I'll give him credit first off. I, I thought Kermit Davis, again, he's a an excellent X's and O's coach. I think he's just a really good coach overall. Uh, probably doesn't get the credit he deserves nationally, but I'm, I'm a big Kermit Davis fan. But got to give credit to Ole Miss. Their defense played well. But Tennessee just, I think I'm ready to concede that Gene and, and just go ahead and say it. This offense isn't any better than the last two seasons. Uh, <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to disagree with me at this point. Tennessee had two points, two points in the first 10 and a half minutes of the game, had four through the first 12, and it was 13 to two. At one point, it was 16 to four with like eight minutes left to go in, in the first half. And then give Tennessee, they were able to go on, a, you'll finally find some sort of rhythm and offense, make it 21-19 at halftime. Tennessee comes back in the second half and finally does something on offense, just enough to get and fight and claw and scratch their way to overtime. And then in overtime, of course, Tennessee makes five of their six shots, scores 15 points in five minutes, something they could not have done in, in, in regulation, and win 66-60. Uh, I'm not going to lie, Gene, when it was in the second half and Ole Miss had just drained uh, – uh, Tennessee tied it up at 38 all. Ole Miss comes back and – ends up draining back-to-back threes on back-to-back possessions, uh, both of them by Ty Fagan, who just had an outstanding game. I, I think probably his game of his career, he's one of the million of million players who transferred from Georgia. But he does back-to-back threes, and Tennessee's down by eight with just under seven minutes to go. Uh, Tennessee ends up getting a, a three by Ziegler, but then again, you get a, a, a transition, not a transition, but like a, a, a dunk by Ole Miss with about five and a half minutes to go. I'm thinking this is over. Like I, I, I've seen Tennessee's offense tonight. This game's over. Got to give credit to Tennessee. They, they fought back. They used their defense to uh, force turnovers. Vescovy really, really, really st- came up big in the in, in the final minutes. He had a, that four point play that really turned the momentum back to Tennessee. Made it 48-45. 
and then uh, Josiah Jordan James nailed a three, and then you had another three by Vescovy to tie it up at 51 all, and that's when it went to overtime. And then Tennessee again, like I said, they, they actually found offense in overtime. But Gene, a, a couple different takeaways from this one, but we'll kind of get to, uh, I think, probably some of the more negative ones here in a second. But I do want to say my two biggest positive takeaways, I guess maybe technically three biggest positive takeaways from that game. Uh, the defense is for real. I, I know offense, I know Ole Miss was not the most gifted offensive team out there. Uh, they, again, they were without their leading scorer. But you had Ty Fagan and Matthew Morrell who had fantastic games. But Tennessee forced 27 turnovers. And yes, some of them were unforced errors. There were ones that Ole Miss made mistakes, you know, like the the kid catching the ball. I think Ty Fagan actually catching the ball and had his foot on the out-of-bounds line in the corner. And there were several other ones where it was a, a, an Ole Miss, you know, they did it and wasn't Tennessee doing it. But Tennessee forced, I think, like three or four shot clock violations on Ole Miss because of their defense. They stole that they had a total of 17 steals in the game did Tennessee. So again, their defense was a masterclass in that game. And again, Ole Miss's defense is very good, but I think that was, again, just Tennessee's defense is, is legit and is really, really good. Vescovy, I think is Tennessee's best player. I don't know how you can argue anyone else. Kenny Chandler might be the most purely talented player, but Vescovy is the best player and is feeling and playing his role better than anyone right now. He finished that game with 17 points Six rebounds, five assists, three steals. Talk about filling up the stat sheet. Only only two turnovers on five assists as well. Uh, four of ten from three, three of three from the free throw line, five of twelve overall. And he played forty two minutes in that game. Um, and also, I, I I was thinking while watching the game, Gene, like watching with my own two eyes, I was thinking Olivia Kamal wasn't having a great game. And then I checked the stat sheet. He finished the game with 13 points, two rebounds, three assists, and a block, and he was five of seven from the floor and made his only three-pointer that he attempted. So ended up doing pretty good. It was Tennessee's second-leading scorer and, uh, you know, apparently played better than I thought he did. But, Gene, we'll, we'll, we'll get to – trust me, we'll get to the negatives here in a second because there was, there's plenty to talk about that way. But I, I think it's it's easy to focus on the negatives when it's a low-scoring game. But I think you got to give credit to the defense because if it wasn't for Tennessee's defense in that game – they would have been blown out because Ole Miss, they shot pretty well from the field. Overall, they they connected on, what, 44% of their, their shots. They were 50% from three, 11 of 22. But a lot of that damage was by those two players, was by Fagan and by Morrell. The rest of the team didn't shoot particularly great. But again, Tennessee forced a lot of turnovers, and Tennessee out-rebounded Ole Miss. And especially on the offensive boards, Tennessee had a, a much, much better showing on the offensive boards and getting second-chance opportunities um, then Ole Miss. So we'll, we'll get to kind of the negative takeaways in a second, but Gene, because I, I think it's easy to to dwell on that when it's a game that was 51 all at the end of regulation. But I, I got to give credit where credit's due. Tennessee's defense was stellar. And I think if we're going to see more offensive showings like this moving forward for Tennessee, it's important this defense shows up because defense travels for the most part. If your offense is off, if you have a really good defense, that travels and, and plays well. So I think Tennessee has a good bedrock foundation to re- rely upon. We'll talk about it in a second if it's good enough with the way the offense is. But I, I just wanted to start with some some positives first, Gene. You know, kind of ease people into the <laughs> transition into the the more negative takes we're going to have here in a second. Right, and I, and I like the fact that you use the word transition because I think that's one of the like the main like the the the, the main points I want to kind of point to. Mm-hmm. Um, like the twenty seven turnovers are great. It, it stinks that 
some of those turnovers were shot clock violations or stepping on the end line and, and things of that nature because guess what that means? Can't run. Yep. Like, you get steals, you can you can turn those into baskets, and Tennessee likes to turn defense into offense. Uh, and, you know, they weren't really able to do that as much. Like, the dead ball turnovers don't really benefit you offensively. And, like, they're still – like, I think Tennessee's still trying to figure out what they're going to be offensively. But, I mean, like you, you said it, man. Like, defense, it, it, it travels. And – like they're gonna have the ability. I, I somebody tweeted at, excuse me, somebody tweeted at me this morning, and I just replied like, but Tennessee's gonna have a chance to win a lot of basketball games this year just simply because of defense. And you know, like they they have better offensive players than they have had in the past couple of years. So there's you know you'll have a game where you where a kid has like a, a really sort of standout game. Um, and, you know, like, for instance, like, you know, Vescovi last night, you know, Fulkerson against Arizona, you know, Chandler had a couple good games early, but, you know, like that, you know, but defense is, is what's going to carry this team, you know, wherever they go in March and they can just maybe piece together some offense. So, um, you know, I said, so like, I, I guess my biggest takeaway from it is just, you know, you know, Vescovi. Like you see, you look at Vescovi's production. Look at what he's been able to do. Uh, like I've been more impressed this season by. It's kind of what I thought was going to happen too. But I've been I've been so impressed by his willingness to just say, I don't care how close you are to me, I don't care how tightly guarded I am. If I have, if I can see the rim, that shot's going up. Like there's no better. Like that's. Like it's funny when people always try to suggest that uh, always try to suggest that you know Steph Curry is this just really calm, just humble player. Like there is no better, there is no greater flex than doing some of the things that Steph Curry does in a game. Mm-hmm. There is no more confident player on the court than the kid than the player that looks at a guy who is inches away from it and says, "I'm still going to pull this in your face, and I'm going to be surprised when I miss it." And that's exactly what Vescovi is to me. Um, you know, and, and that's like when I watching him last week against Alabama, seeing what I saw of him last night. I, like to your point earlier, I don't see how you can suggest that there's somebody on that team that's better. Um, you know, you, everybody can have their suggestions. People can go to 24-7 Sports and tell me who was rated higher. I don't care. Vescovi is the best player on that team. And it should, it's really not close. Like, you, you see it. Like, when you watch a game, my, here's my question to anybody and everybody. When when you watch the game, when you watch Tennessee play, who stands out? Because to me, that, that, it's that simple to me. Who stands out? Like, who, where do your eyes gravitate? To me, the eyes have never gravitated towards the point guard position. Because I don't see much difference between Chandler and Ziegler. Yeah, at least not in, watching, not like the big time games or SEC games. I, I would one hundred percent agree with you. Yes, not not to the point guard position. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I understand they've each had moments, and, <laughs> I, and I get that. But no, this is this is positive segment. So, <laughs> um, so like like to me, every, when I've watched, especially the past few games, and yes, yeah, some of it may be 
Fulkerson trying to knock Rust off, Chandler trying to knock Rust off, whatever you want to say, I don't care. To me, when I've watched that team play, the best player is Vescovi. Mm-hmm. I mean, anybody can argue the most important player. That's fine. Like I would say Josiah Jordan James, and I would just I would feel comfortable with that decision. But like that, that's a conversation people aren't quite willing to have. Also, remember, folks, he had ten points, eight rebounds last night. Yep. Um, like that will be what I would argue. And you know, you brought up you know Olivier's numbers. Thought he had a pretty solid game. Chandler and Fulkerson, you know, they're going to be fine. I'm not worried about that. But like, I think the biggest takeaway is obviously the defense. You look what the defense has become. They forced all the turnovers. It's unfortunate that some of them were just your defense was so good that they couldn't get a shot off, and so therefore the ball comes back to you. And and as they try to piece together this offense, the unfortunate thing is you have to take the ball out. And you can't just run and get layups and dunks and kind of get the crowd into it as well. Because that's that's a rough plotting sort of game. Like when Ole Miss shot the ball, they had a lot of success. Yep. It's just you turned them over enough, made some plays where you needed to, and to me, that's all you have to do. That like I'm, I'm happy if that's the end result. But like, yeah, we didn't do everything right, but you know, there's tons of rooms for you know, tons of room for improvement. But you know, we got to win against a, a hungry SEC team that did have some good players. They just didn't maybe have some of their best. Right. Yeah. And, and Ole Miss in this game only attempted. 50 shots because again 27 turnovers was a big reason why they, they and they only attempted eight free throws too uh tennessee on the meanwhile attempted 64 shots tennessee had 19 turnovers which which is uncharacteristic for them tennessee normally doesn't turn over more than uh 10 11 12 times a game so that that was also again tennessee played sloppy um as well at, at certain points especially at kennedy chandler well we'll go ahead and kind of start transitioning into some of the negatives here he he did have seven assists but he had five turnovers that's Technically, yes, it's a positive assist to turnover ratio, but the five turnovers is not good from your starting point guard, especially when you look at uh, Sakai Ziegler, who played the exact same amount of minutes as Kenny Chandler did, and he finished with two turnovers. Only three assists, but I, I would still take the two turnovers uh, as opposed to five turnovers regardless, and he finished with more points and more rebounds, and he's a smaller dude <laughs> than Kenny Chandler. Not by not by a great deal, but he's still smaller than, than Chandler is, and Two of eight from three, Chandler was 0 of 4. Again, like you said, you, you can chalk some of this up to Chandler and, and Fulkerson, I think, having to come back from COVID. And, man, Fulky did not look good in that game at all. Uh, and the stat line shows it. He's, he's five points, three fouls, three turnovers in 18 minutes. And I think that was a big reason why, uh, you know, normally late in games when Tennessee goes to that uh, four-guard, one, one forward-slash-center uh, lineup, it's normally Fulkerson that's down there. In, in this game, it was Kamal who was the guy down there. And I think that's, you know, tells you I need to know about what how Fulkerson was playing in that game and, and maybe his his you know health or whatever at this point, too. But you, you made a good point, and you and I were talking before we started recording here for the podcast about Kennedy Chandler and about Sakai Ziegler, and does the offense actually look any different when one is at the point guard and and and, and whatever, and I think this is a good point that you know we're talking about and looking at the most recent early early mock draft on for the NBA on the Athletic by uh, Sam Vizzini, and he had Ken Chandler going number twenty to the Denver Nuggets, and his write up I think was very telling. Uh, that was kind of the the first paragraph here because it's kind of the one that pertains to what we're talking about. 
He says, I haven't loved what I've seen from Kennedy Chandler this year, despite his averaging 14 points and five assists with reasonable percentages. He has electric speed and can get into the paint, but I don't love the way he reads defenses when he gets there. He seems to not totally recognize exactly how defenders are playing him if they start to mix on-ball coverages. He's comfortable getting to his floater, but he rarely gets all the way to the rim to finish or draw fouls. He also has a bit of a propensity to over-dribble on the perimeter. I would agree with that. Uh, There isn't really much of a difference in the team's offensive efficiency when Chandler is on the court versus when Sakai Ziegler is backing him up. I think you can take that one of two ways to me, Gene. Either one, Tennessee got a really big steal with Sakai Ziegler, and and he's playing to a five-star level, and the fact you're not seeing much of a drop-off, which I I do think Ziegler is a steal, and I think he has been playing exceptionally well and and, and is, you know, a a diamond in the rough. But I think it's maybe more of the second option that is that Chandler's not he's not living up to the expectations he's not playing badly I don't think either but I think to your point that you, I think you were trying to you're hinting at and what we were talking about before we hit record here I, I think you can put into words better I might I might just go ahead and let you flow on this one Gene because I, I think to me what it says is that there's not a drop-off but that's because it's more of the system than it is the player and I I, I wonder what that says about this offense and its ability to truly evolve and, and be a high scoring offense. Because I, I think if that's the case, I mean, I don't know. I, I think you can, again, I think you can probably put it in better words, but that's kind of what I was saying is like either, either it means that Ziegler is, <laughs> he's playing basically at a five-star level or basically playing at the same level as a five-star, you know, talent wise, or it means that this, this system is more what's in control rather than letting the players be the, the free flowing uh, type of guys or whatever. And I think that's the case. I don't, I don't think the, these players, the young guys especially, are comfortable. Again, maybe it's because they're young too, but I don't, I don't know that they're super comfortable just kind of playing themselves. Because I, I think we've seen Candy Chandler have, like as as Sam said, a, a propensity to over-dribble on the perimeter. But I also think he, he cuts too deep when he's driving to the basket. I think he, he makes the decision to shoot or pass a, a fraction too late. And again, he's a young guard. He, he's, a, he's a freshman. You know, these are... You know, he's got plenty of room to improve, and I think he's still going to make to the NBA and things he can improve in the NBA. But we're not concerned with his NBA prowess right now. We're concerned with, with what he's doing at Tennessee. Um, and he's making plenty of mistakes, plenty of freshman mistakes that, you know, I think we expect him to make, but maybe not as many as he is making. All right, so I'm going to take you to, ironically, the 2019-20 season. I'm not doing it from a Tennessee perspective. I introduce you to the Golden State Warriors. Hmm. And that was the year after Kevin Durant left. Um, that was the year, the first year that Clay Thompson, you know, he had just torn his ACL. And so the Warriors basically had Draymond Green, Steph Curry, and a bunch of just guys. Um, that season – they were 15 and 50. Now Curry got hurt that year. That right. kind of changed some stuff too. So last year happens and you know, the Warriors go 39 and 33 and every, you know, and people are just out here yelling, well, you know, they stink, they stink. They're not, you know, that's over. That's over. You know, like it, you look around, they don't have good, whatever. They don't have good players. They stink now. So with those same players this year, 29 and eight, so why do I say that? Because what's happened is 
the players that they got two years ago, the Jordan Pools, the uh, no, no, they brought back a guy like Iguodala, but anyways, just flow with me. Um, they got some guys. They, they, the guys who were that came in two years ago when Clay and obviously Durant were gone. You know, Clay was unavailable. Durant was gone. That was a system that those guys had to learn. And so, like, that's a system that's different, probably different than any other in the NBA. A lot of flowing, a lot of cutting. There's the whole Curry effect because you got to figure out where he's at all the time on the court. Um, so why do I say that? Because three years ago when Tennessee had one of the most prolific offenses in the league, I'm sorry, in the country, that entire team came back from the year before. If you recall, that team the year before won 26 games. Uh, you know, unfortunately got beaten, what was it, the Second round of the NCAA tournament, yeah, by, Loyola by, Chicago, by, yeah, by the Cinderella, Loyola Chicago, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, that whole team came back, and that whole team became better offensively because they all had that off season to work together to where they became one of the best offenses in the country in that 2018-2019 season, where they were consistently getting in the 80s against good teams. I mean, not. Not just your average, like you know, East Tennessee State team, which is obviously a level below, but or just USC upstate, whoever the case may be. Uh, just I mean, basically, just look at the schedule and see the teams that Tennessee was really good against this year. Tennessee was good against all those teams three years ago, and so what I see, what's really been the struggle of the past couple of years, is there's no continuity in the people that are in the system. There's Fulkerson, but his job is basically to just post up and hustle. You'll get a lot of points that way. I'm not I'm not about to dispute his ability as a player. Anybody that's listens to this podcast knows that I will wave the pom-pom for John Fulkerson, the player, long before I ever wave the, the pom-pom for John Fulkerson, the person. And I think he's a great person. I just think he's a completely underrated player. Um so, like, aside from that, everybody is a bunch of new pieces. I mean, Vescovi comes in in January of a couple of years ago. You got Josiah Jordan James is a different piece. So, when I get when I look at the point guard position, I look at two guys who how can I frame this right? I look at two guys like I don't think that the star ranking matters, and that's why I hate the fact that people get it, you know, stars attached to them and that's supposed to mean something more than what it is. Like, at the end of the day, like, you're talking about a kid in Chandler who is an extreme, like, you're seeing the talent and star rankings usually mean talent, not mm-hmm. how good of a basketball player you are. Mm-hmm. Like, the kid's flawed. Like, everything that I read in that Vecini report is stuff that I saw. It's stuff that if y'all listened to our podcast last week, we talked about last week. Like, there are things that you watch, and it's like, okay, I mean, he's extremely talented. He's extremely quick. He's very hard to stay in front of. That that's, that goes without question. But then you see, like, the end of the Arizona game, where he takes an ill-advised shot that Fulkerson bails him out on at the end with a three-point play. Well... The, the, the layup and the foul. He didn't make the free throw. Like, you see so many things, and five-star ranking doesn't mean that you're one of the ten. I understand it. Your potential suggests that you're supposed to be that. 
But you also got to understand, like, where you're going. You're going to a system where Rick Barnes is great for guards, but you're going to play his way. There's probably a lot of places that maybe a Kennedy Chandler could have gone, and maybe he looks different. Mm -hmm. But, like, when you look at the success that Rick Barnes can kind of point to, with his, you know, with his working with point guards, I don't understand like why you can't just like fall in line. Ziegler's falling in line, probably a little bit faster than Chandler has. And look, there are just some things that maybe Ziegler just understands in terms of the feel of the game. And he's looked back. I've watched the, I've watched games. That kids make mistakes too. But there's just some things that maybe he understands within the feel of the game, where he's not out there. You know, like, he doesn't have the same mentality with the ball in his hand that Chandler has. Like, Zegers, like, you know, I, I may, I'm going to attack the basket, but, I mean, I think uh, after he got a shot blocked a number of times, you know, against Alabama, I mean, he's not going to back down. Nope. But he's going to start understanding, okay, I can't do that. So let me, I'm going to start figuring that out. And, hey, he he did when, uh, he did nutmeg a player in the Ole Miss game. I don't know if you saw that, Gene, but he, he got into the paint. And there's a, I think it was the almost seven footer, and he passed it right between the guy's legs to to Kamal for Kamal to finish the ball. So that was, <laughs> that was that was fun right. to see. Sorry, I just had to bring that up. But I just thought that no, was, that was great. And that's, but and you know the other the other side of that when you know when we talk about the point guard play is when you've been impossible to as hard to guard as Kennedy Chandler has been his entire life. You don't learn another way to play because nobody can stop you. And I don't think that that's, that's, that has to be considered. Like, if if you were completely unguardable with the ball in your hands, why would you have – what do you mean somebody can stop me? What do you mean I have to pass the ball out when I get when I get to the rim? What are you talking about? Like, I've been doing this my whole life. I've been getting to the rim and dunking on kids and, you know, making layups and all this that. Like, you have to learn. After a while, I mean, look, your best players, when things have come so easy for them in life, then all of a sudden they have to start adjusting because those things that came easy in life no longer come easy. That's when you start to see the adjustment. So I wouldn't be surprised if at, over the next couple months we see, a, we see a different adjustment in Chandler's game. Like, for Tennessee to be good, they need him to make those adjustments because, like, the book is out on him. Like, man, let that kid get to the lane and just don't jump. Like, let that kid – He, I mean, he's quick. He'll get to the lane. Just, you know, make him make him make decisions when he gets into the lane. Like, the book is out on him. Like, that's not – like, if you don't think somebody like Will Wade on this Saturday as we kind of transition is going to kind of have – you know, something in place for the Chandler kid, then, like, yeah, I mean, but that, that that's a program that I don't know how good LSU is. I don't have a clue. I know that's always a good game between those two teams ever since Wade got to LSU and Barnes was been at Tennessee. I know that's always been a competitive game. And it's been a while. I, I don't remember, but when was the last time Tennessee beat LSU? Has, has Wade lost to him? I'm assuming early on. Yeah, I feel like no, yeah, it has to be. I'm gonna look it up really quick. That's a really good question. Maybe that, maybe that 17, 18 season. I'm not even sure if he was there at that point. Uh, let's see what the history. No, 17, 18, he was there because I, I, yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, Tennessee's okay. last win was yeah, it was January 31st, 2018, at in Knoxville, 84, 61. His first season. 
Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, it's his first season at LSU. Yeah. And Yeah, and UT look, hasn't I, won at Baton Rouge, which is what they're playing this weekend since twenty fifteen. Right. So I I just wonder like how quickly can Chandler adjust to how he's being played? Because it's real easy it's real easy to have success when nobody has a book on you. I mean, case in point, look at, you know, as we bring up LSU, look at what Vescovi did the very first game that mm-hmm. he showed up against. That was against LSU. And, you know, after that game was over, I'm pretty sure it was, like, 18 points. Um, I know he had nine turnovers. I think he had, like, what, four or five assists. I, mean, I think he had a few assists in that game as well. Nobody had a book on him. Right. So the people will start guarding you differently, especially on that team um, that didn't really have a lot of offensive prowess. This team does, but it needs to be led by its point guards, and they're still trying to figure that out. But I, I do think that as um, I, I do think that as Chandler goes on, I don't. I, I think he's a. I think he's an intelligent player. I think he's a good player. Mm-hmm. He's obviously going to be drafted somewhere in either, I think, probably second round. Maybe he'll sneak into the first somewhere uh, just because of his size, not not because of any sort of talent, you know, whatever. But, um, like, I'll be interested to see how he improves as, look, the next eight, what, let's see, how many more conference games they have, like 15 plus the Texas game. So uh, the next 15, yeah, 16, 16 plus 17 th- games. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll be interested to see how he develops and grows because now if you're somebody like Barnes you've got tape uh to show just because coaches have tape on your player you've also got tape on your player Mm -hmm. and you can show him things where he can be better because you kind of look at the end of the day as I wrap this long soliloquy up you want you need Chandler to be a better player than Ziegler you need Ziegler to be good but you need Chandler to be better just because he's your starter. And if, if if for some reason you switch things up, then you need Ziegler to be a considerably better player than Chandler. But they can't be the same guy. They can't be the same person. That doesn't benefit you. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, they both have to be good, but one has to be substantially better. Otherwise... They're just the same guy when you put on the court, just wearing different jerseys. Yeah, I agree. They, they, one needs to have a different skill set. It needs to bring something different to the table because, like you said, otherwise you're if you're not changing things up when you're bringing in a sub, then what's the point of bringing in a sub other than to, I guess, to rest the guy? But it's just, it, it, yeah, there's not, at least there's not much of a drop-off, it doesn't feel like, between the two, but you would like to have something different when you bring a, a guy in rather than bringing in the same player. So I, I, I think it's a really good point. You also said something that really struck me and I was doing some quick research while you were talking there you talked about you know the the most successful teams at Tennessee under Rick Barnes so far and specifically that 2018-19 team that brought back you know basically everyone from the year before it's like the thinking like looking back at the most successful teams Rick Barnes had at Texas and you know I'm gonna get the teams that made that final four team in 2003 and then the two elite eight teams in 2006 and 2008 that 0203 team returns 90% of the minutes played and 89% of the scoring from the previous season. That, that was a team that had TJ Ford, Brendan Mouton, uh, Royal Ivy, guys like that on that team. So they, they returned 
basically just like the Tennessee team, almost everyone from the year before. The 0506 team that made the Elite Eight returned 62% of the minutes played and 64% of the scoring. It had PJ Tucker, Marcus Aldridge, Daniel Gibson. So again, those are all those guys were really good as freshmen, but they came back and played a second and third year at Texas. And again, 62%, so almost two thirds of your minutes and scoring from the previous year. The 2007-8 team that made the Elite Eight, 75.8% of the minutes and 64% of the scoring. That was a DJ Augustine, Damian James, uh, and, and a, a sophomore Dexter Pittman on that team as well. And also AJ Abrams was on that team. I can't forget him. So that, that to me, Gene, I think that fits right in line with what's happened at Tennessee so far. Teams that are more veteran. Mark Barnes has the best, best amount of success, success with, excuse me. That of course that's not all, all, all across the board. I haven't checked the other, other teams that were kind of more disappointing ones that even though had talent, you know, didn't do as well in the regular season. I haven't checked every single season under Rick Barnes at Texas, but those were the three most successful, at least with the, you know, looking at the postseason run, especially the three most successful seasons at Texas for Rick Barnes. And there are probably three of the more experienced teams he had. And you look at Tennessee, that 17-18 team that won the regular season or a share of the SEC regular season had almost 6%. It was, it was 58.7% of the minutes played and 61% of the scoring returning from that previous year. So you had a sophomore Grant Williams, a junior Admiral Schofield, sophomore Jordan Bone, sophomores Lamonte Turner and Jordan Bowden, uh, a junior Kyle Alexander. But then you look at the 18-19 team, and it very much like that 0-2-0-3 Texas team that made it to the Final Four, Tennessee had 87% of the minutes they had, minutes played from the previous season returning and basically 90% of the scoring is 89.8. So 90% of the scoring returning from the previous year. And again, you had very little roster turnover between that 17, 18 team and 18, 19 uh, this year from last year for Tennessee, the, from the roster from last season, Tennessee returned 56.3% of the minutes and 53.6 of the scoring. So, you know, a little over half, it's not, awful and especially in this, this day and age of college basketball it feels like that's not that's probably a somewhat more veteran team than a lot of teams out there but again that's not you know that's not the type of teams that rick barnes generally has had the most success with from just just the quick amount of research i was able to do because I, I, again i thought what you said really struck me i thought you know that's a good point i, I wonder how his teams at texas were come to find out his three best teams at texas were all very veteran laden or at least guys that were if they're really good as freshmen they returned to sophomores so um yeah, I do that with what you will, Gene, but I, I think that's a that's a point that I hadn't really thought about a ton until just now that Tennessee did return guys from last year, but they also, we talked about this in the preseason, um, yeah, they returned key players like Fulkerson, Vescovy, Josiah Jordan-James, and, and those guys, but they also had a lot of new, especially for the bench. And yeah, you're starting a new guy with Kennedy Chandler, and Kanwa's a new starter, but he's been there at least. He's, he's been there for a couple seasons, but hasn't been a big-time contributor but man, your your bench is almost all new players. You're looking at uh, for Tennessee this year. Your, your bench players have been Justin Powell, who's a transfer, Sakai Ziegler, who's a freshman, uh, Brendan Huntley Hatfield, who's a freshman, Victor Bailey. I, I guess he's been kind of a starter, kind of a, a, a backup. He, he's your he's your lone veteran, like true veteran bench player. I guess you count your Roche too. But Bailey, at, to our point from last episode. We were saying we want to see more Justin Powell. Powell played 22 minutes and Bailey played two against uh, Ole Miss. So I don't really think you can count him. He's only playing two minutes in a game. But again, most of your players, Jeremiah Mayshack's a freshman. And he's, he's starting to see his minutes increase too. A lot of your bench players at Tennessee are 
young guys or, or new guys to the team. It's It's been Bailey and Urosh are your, your two returning guys that have been your, your main bench guys. And again, they don't really average that many minutes per game now. So that, I think that's why I wonder if this team, do they gel more as the season goes on? Cause they're fairly young and new, or is this just kind of what we're going to see for the rest of the year? All right. So to further that point, I mean, Olivier, this ain't this wasn't his role from last year. Let's be right. clear. Like I mean, everybody, anybody that knows, I mean, we all know Olivier was one of those kids who was trying to find his way in this program for two seasons, and it appears as though he seems to be starting. He he seems to have found his footing, and but like, look, it's I, I I'm big on new experiences. Like I've seen teams that have been thrown I've covered teams that have been I don't want to say thrown together but they've had a lot of new pieces that come into play and then all of a sudden you know like they they may like they may surprise they may look really good in the regular season but then guess what here comes the tournament or whatever the conference tournament the postseason tournament and they look lost I I covered a UTC team that was second in its uh, coached by Will Wade, ironically, um, that finished second in the league and was a very trendy pick to win the tournament and got beat by a 10, a 10 seed in the first game of its conference tournament. And it was a lot of new bodies trying to figure stuff out. Like March is a different you know, intensity level. It's a different mentality that you have to have as you take it to the game. And they didn't understand that. It, ironically, Will leaves and takes the VCU job. Uh, he's replaced by a guy named Matt McCall, who's now at UMass, who in in Matt's first year, that same exact team won 29 games and won the, the conference championship, went on the road and won a number of key games. Like, there's something to be said for having been in the, in the program for uh, for a number of years and having played a similar role to what you're being asked to play. Um, for a number of years. Like, Tennessee has that with a few guys. Uh, Vescovi's pretty much being asked to do what he was being asked to do. I mean, I guess uh, Josiah, just go out there and just make plays. You know, you know, Fulkerson, just be you. You know, beyond that, you know, Yorosh. Like, there, there's not that many guys. And it's funny, about you brought up the point about all the returning production because – you know, I'm big on the experienced players that return, guys who have been through it that return. And I remember right at the start of COVID in 2020, I wrote a story on how, you know, the importance of Victor Bailey in a playoff push or tournament push. That obviously has not worked out. It, it made sense to me at the time when I wrote it because to me, like if you're a junior or a senior or whatever in a program and you've, you've had – you know what it takes to win in March, and look, Bailey had played on two teams at Oregon that had made that had played in the postseason. It made sense to me that this kid could be the key to a postseason run. And look, he still could be. I mean, he still could be. Like if Bailey, if Powell can't consistently figure out how to play defense, because like that's look, it, it could be very easy to focus so much on the defense that now your offense starts sliding because you're so paranoid about your defense that you start you don't even worry too much about the offensive side 
And so that starts to slip. And like this, like it's it's a frustrating time if you're a kid like Powell because, and, and I don't mean that like towards anybody. Like he's looking for a way to play. How do you play? In, in, you know, at Tennessee, you play defense, but hey, you don't don't let that offense suffer. But you got to play defense. Hey, you you look you look good on offense, but you got lost three times with defense, so I can't play you. Okay, now your defense is starting to look up. Now we need you to hit shots, and it can be it, it can be tiresome. It can be you know tiresome for a, a younger player. He's going to figure it out. He's going to be fine. I'm just speaking of where he's at right now. Um, but you never know. Maybe a kid like Bailey can figure his way out. There's going to be another game where you need him. Yeah. I don't know when it's going to be. It's going to happen. But uh, I, I'm glad that. Sometimes when I just start spitballing, that you can actually back up what I say with facts, uh-huh. because I, you know, I have thoughts. I always have thoughts, especially when it comes to basketball, because I love talking ball, um, and I and I love when I get vindicated, you know, by you know by Sam you know Vicini, uh from the Athletic. I think that's how you pronounce his game, his name. I'm sorry if that is wrong. If people start tweeting him and saying that I'm butchering his name, I'm sorry, <laughs> but. Um, he basically said what we talked about in this podcast last week was the the difference in the point guard position. But like for this team, this team can still have success. Mm-hmm. One of the greatest things about what happened to you know that team three years ago that was number one in the country was the fact they brought everybody back. So therefore, they did. There wasn't. Yeah. So they didn't need the whole November and December to figure out who they were. But that was also the worst thing that could happen to that team because there was no room for growth. Those were all juniors and seniors. They weren't going to it, they weren't going to get better as a team because they were already great as a team. So when you see them beat Gonzaga and everybody's excited, they're number one in the country and they're winning games, they're beating Georgia by 78 points and they're winning other games and Jordan Bone plays well against South Carolina, they're winning all these games. Like, they're not getting better. They're just good. And there's a difference there. I think this team can get a lot better. Is their, is their peak better than that team? I don't know. I can't answer that. But one difference between this team and maybe that team from a few years ago is this team can get better in so many ways. Like, all the guys, you take out Vescovi, and I'm sorry, not Vescovi. You take out Fulkerson and I guess perhaps Vescovi, so many of the players on that team can get so much better. And that has to be exciting. Like If you're going yeah. to take a positive yeah. approach to this, that has to be the approach, is that there's still so much room for improvement for this team. I just don't know where this thing gets capped at, or if, do they ever reach the full potential of this team? Yeah, I, I think that's that's exactly what I was thinking too. Is like I don't I don't think they've reached their ceiling, but also I'm not entirely sure they've reached the basement. Like I don't know that the Texas, the Texas Tech game or the Villanova game or or the offense in this Ole Miss game. I don't I don't know that's the basement. I mean I, I that what's that's what worries me. I, again I I really don't think they fit the ceiling of what their potential can you know lead them to. But to your point, like will they do that? Um, I'm looking up here on Hazometrics, which is one of my favorite go-to stats sites along with Kim Palm. We've had, I've had Eric Haslam on this show uh, a couple of different times when I've done this podcast. And also when I worked at Rocket Top Insider, had him on the RITI podcast. He, he has a, 
a consistency metric on there, I don't, which I don't think Ken Palm has, uh, not at least on the main site that I, I'm looking at for Ken Palm. But Tennessee currently, Gene, I think this is a really goes back to what we've been talking about consistency wise. Tennessee currently ranks 292nd in the country in consistency. So that that's really you know what we've talked about. They they've just been kind of all over the place this year, and they they've had some really good games. They've had some really bad ones, and it just kind of. I think that's the mark of a team that has a lot of young pieces trying to find themselves. And like you said, they can, there's a lot of guys who can get better. Will they, and how much better are they going to get this season? Um, but you talked about just now. Um, oh goodness. I just looked at their <laughs> the average, average rank away from home. Tennessee ranks 340th. They've been awful on the road. And speaking of which Tennessee is about to go on the road to play LSU. I, 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 like I said, a place they haven't won at since 2015, and you want to talk about defense. Uh, this game is going to feature the two best defenses in the country, according to Ken Palm. Tennessee ranks number two in defensive efficiency, and LSU ranks number one. So we're going to see probably another game in the 50s, possibly, Gene, because we were talking about before before the, the show here. It's weird because you see the defensive numbers of LSU and Tennessee and you kind of see the both offensively. They're, they're very similar with their uh, per game averages. Tennessee averages um, 76.6 points per game and allows 60.4 LSU averages 76.8. So like literally basically averaging the same amount of points per game and they're giving up 55.6. So again, they they're very similar in their per game averages in that respect. Um, but Tennessee's going down to a place where they've had very little luck against a coach who they've had very little luck against. And <laughs> LSU, I think, is a, a, a slight paper tiger right now with the record. They're 13-1, but they've not played a ton of great competition. They, they lost in a bad way on the road against Auburn, but they did just beat Kentucky at home in a, a game that had a, a wild ending sequence in the last 30 seconds of that game. But they've not beaten a ton of incredible teams. They do have a win against Belmont, which Belmont's a really good, you know, mid-major team. They beat Penn State and they beat Wake Forest in terms of you know high-major teams. They beat Georgia Tech, not like a, a murderer's row of of non-conference. They've beaten Louisiana Monroe, Texas State, Liberty, McNeese State, Ohio, Northwestern State, and Louisiana Tech, Lipscomb. So again, they, they didn't have a a a strong non-conference slate of games. In fact, I'm looking at um. Ken Palm right now, their adjusted non-conference strength of the schedule ranks 197th. So, not great. But again, they, they still are a solid, I think they are still a very solid team and a team that I I don't feel great about Tennessee winning. I, 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 we can preview it here a little bit, Gene, but I, I just think this game sets up to be a game where it's low scoring. I don't feel great about it because of the way Tennessee's offense is played, but again, LSU looking at their offense um, against high major teams, they scored 65 against Kentucky. 55 against Auburn, 69 against Georgia Tech, 75 against Wake Forest, and 68 against Penn State. So, you know, taking out the games against the Sun Belts and the Southlands and the Max, looking at their their games against Big Ten, ACC, and and SEC opponents, they're not averaging enough points either. So that's why I think this game could be a lot like Texas Tech or could be a lot like Ole Miss. I, I just think it's going to be a uh, another low score. I, I don't think I actually finished what I thought earlier when I was talking about why we're, it was kind of surprising about their their numbers. I didn't finish my point. I, I got distracted. But we're talking about how like their defense defensive efficiency is so good and but their offense offensive efficiency is actually not that bad. And both teams actually like to run. 
uh, and kind of get transitioned offense with a hand because Tennessee's tempo on Ken Palm currently ranks 86th and LSU's ranks 52, 52nd, sorry. So they're, they're both like to run a lot and they both like to, you know, kind of push pace when they can, but the defenses are just so good and Tennessee just can't make a shot. And I'm going to look at LSU's stats here. Cause I, I have a feeling that they may not be the most efficient shooting. Yeah. They're, they're making 31% of their threes. So that's again, about right where Tennessee is. Tennessee is 32 and a half of their threes. 32.5% of their threes this year, and LSU's 31.6. In conference play, LSU's making 28.8, and Tennessee's making 27%. So, oh, Gene, I don't have high hopes for this game getting out of uh, getting out of the 50s very much, honestly. I just don't. It's, it's going to be another rock fight, I think. Man, I think it's going to be a game in the 60s or 70s. Maybe, uh, if, if we see a lot of fouls and free throw attempts. <laughs> That's what I'm looking at. I, I think... Well, and again, I brought it up with the Ole Miss game. Like, the issue was, I mean, both teams, I mean, you're talking about the two best defensive teams in the country. I'll take consideration that, you know, LSU hasn't exactly played a murderous role of the schedule. Um, what, what was the Belmont score? I'm sorry I missed it. No, no, I, know no. They, uh, I, know they, I know they played Belmont. Yeah, That's the Belmont score team. was 83-53. Wow, they killed them that game. Okay. Uh, and that's just one of those where physically – we're stronger than you are. There's nothing you can do about it. And and so it's going to be contingent. If both teams have to score in the half court, you're right. Yeah. It could be 40s or 50s. But I, I just I get the feeling it's going to be a game that's played in the 60s or 70s just because I, I think that both teams are good enough defensively and they both have guys – who are willing to get the ball out and transition and run, uh, like guards who can get the ball out and transition and run, and they can turn that defense and the offense really quick. Like, you know, I mean, Kennedy Chandler uh, is as good in the open court as pretty much anybody in the country because of his speed. Um, you know, Heck Ziegler is. He's not, I mean, he's not the finisher, but uh, Chandler is, but, uh, I mean, but he's still really good. You've got Vescovi who can run a fast break. You've got Josiah who can run a fast break. You've got guys who can do what you need in that regard there. Um, yeah, I, I think I think you're looking at a game that's going to be in the 60s. I don't think it's going to be the rock fight because I, when was the last time that either one of those teams – when was the last time those two teams played a game in the 50s or whatever against yeah. each other? Like those games are typically in the 60s and 70s. I get it. Maybe they were slightly more offensively talented, but heck, that was. I, I look, man. I was there. I was covering Tennessee. What was it? Two seasons ago, in January of 2020, uh, when Vescovi made his entrance, and I don't remember the score of that game, but that was not a good offensive team for Tennessee. That was not, and I feel like they somehow got it. They may have somehow snuck into like 60 points in that game. In that game, um, there's going to be a number of possessions. Do those possessions turn the points? I can't speak on that. <laughs> but uh, that was a 60. Okay, that was 78-64 LSU. Yeah, I was looking like the, the last really true like low scoring game. You could technically count the the last year of Conzo. It was 68-50 in Baton Rouge, but Tennessee got the win. But really, like the last time both teams really had trouble scoring was back in. Uh, 2010, March of 2010, in the I think SEC tournament, it was a, a 59-49 win for Tennessee in that one. 
Yeah, and, and so I think you're having you're going to have a game because you're going to have a lot of there's a lot of talent. You know who's big in this game? Huntley Hatfield. And I and sometimes I yeah. bring it up. I, I think I bring it up. That's a kid who he can match the athleticism of a team. Like just look at the games that he's been effective in. Just simply look at the games that he's been effective in. It, it's been against teams. Um, like it's been against teams that have, I mean, that you know, that are truly talented teams. Like I mean, some, I mean, Carolina, he was good. Uh, Alabama, he was good. Mm-hmm. And look, we can say what we want about UNC, the basketball team. I think the Southern Conference is better than the ACC this year, in my personal opinion. I think it is too. But, um, but the ACC is, I mean, that's still Carolina at the end of the day. Like, their biggest issue is the fact that he's got a first-year head coach. And they're, they're eventually going to figure that out. But when they played, Tennessee dominated that game. And Huntley Hatfield had a really good game. Like, there's some games where you just have to turn your guys loose and say, just go play. Just go play. And that was kind of what happened in the first half of that Alabama game. Huntley Hatfield was just like, hey, man, just go play. Don't worry about all this, that, and the other. Don't stress, you know, this. Don't stress that. Just go play. Like, I had a high school – I had a coach when I was in high school that used to just – all – the dude never got – he got off the bench once in two years. And we won a – we we ended up winning 59 games in those two years. Won a state championship my sophomore year and won 26 games my junior year. And – I was one of those players when I was younger. I was constantly in my head. I wanted to do things the right way. And he would, early in the season, he would just tell me, just go play. Don't worry about this. Don't worry about that. Just go play. And there's sometimes in a game where you just have to just tell your guys to just go play. I think that Saturday's going to be the sort of game where he tells a kid like Huntley Hatfield, just go play. Like, just go match what they're doing, go match their athleticism. There's not in some games. There's not a ton of rhyme or reason in what the other team is trying to do. Like some, you know, some coaches in the SEC. I mean, look. I mean, they're just going to tell their guys to just just turn them loose. Alabama, like that guy, you know, Nate Oates just tells those guys just he just turns them loose. There's some, yeah. There's a system involved, but that system is pretty free flowing. Tennessee's offensive system is not. That's the difference there. Yep. But, like, you can tell those guys that sometimes, look, man, Kennedy, attack the paint, Zakai, attack the paint, Santi, attack attack the the paint, get in there, you know, if if the guy's not there, just dish it. Brandon, Folky, whoever it is, just go dunk that thing. And it's simple. And it's a simple system. And sometimes you just have to play that way. And I, again, so I, I think I think that this could be—I don't want to say the coming out game for like a, a Huntley Hatfield, but I think that early in the game, um, I've got a couple things going on Saturday, so I, I probably won't be able to see it live. I'll have to turn around and look at it later. It's a six o'clock game. Y'all probably see it a little bit later, maybe on Sunday. They'll be, I'll, I'll look on my Twitter feed. And I'll just have like a little. I'll have a slight smile because I'll see some people talking about this is the Huntley Hatfield that we've been wanting to see, or something along those lines. Because 
Like, those first half minutes are huge. And if he does everything he's supposed to do in the first half, if he can, you know, if he can match that in the second half, you may slowly start to see the player that everybody was talking about early in the season. But I, I think this is a game that's going to be in the 60s. I think it's going to be it's going to be maybe up and down. Now both teams I think are kind of offensively challenged. I've got a friend who that who played at LSU a while back, and he was texting me in the preseason telling me that he didn't think this team was going to be very good. <laughs> Personally, so it's funny that they're 21 in the country now. But I, I think that this is the sort of game where the two teams can kind of go up and down and back and forth. And that's the sort of game where you just turn some of your athletes loose and just let them play. So I think it'll be a little bit more higher score than you think, Nathaniel. I, I do. I do. I truly do. Um, I'm not here to predict winners or losers, but I do think it's going to be a really good game. You were mentioning earlier, we were talking about kind of how we, you know, the tempo, you, you just mentioned kind of them being your more free flow offense. If this a website I just found, if it's not if it's not lying to me, it's a, a website called uh, Hoop Math. So if it's not lying to me, it's a, a, a place that likes to it, it apparently compile basketball play by play statistics and looking at the offense of this current season. LSU currently ranks seventy uh, second, so it's top one hundred, which in college basketball is pretty good. Seventy uh, second in percentage of shots in transition. They uh, the percentage of the shots in transition this year have been 27.4. So they do get a lot of, of shots in transition. Conversely, Tennessee ranks like 130 something, I think 137. They with 25.3% of their, their shots in transition. I'll look up the transition um, effective field goal percentage. I feel like LSG was pretty high up there if I remember seeing it correctly. Oh no, they're actually a little bit lower than I thought they, thought they were, but still that, that, that's a, that was something I was trying to find, like if there's a site that compiles like transition points and things like that. And this site, again, it's not lying to me, says that a, a pretty decent chunk of LSU's um, shot percentages come from transition you know, attempts there. So that, that, that's worth watching. Can Tennessee limit the turnovers, the live ball turnovers? You know, if they're doing shot clock violations or throwing the ball out of bounds, that's one thing. But if you're allowing LSU to you know, steal the ball from you or, or whatever, or block shots and everything, um, and then they get the ball, then that's allowing for transition opportunities. That's where you can get roasted. So I mean, you're right. I, I don't think it's going to be, you know, based on what you just said, I don't think it's going to be in the, the 50s. I think it'll be 60s, 70s, but I still think it's going to be a game where defense wins and both these teams have really good defenses. So who who can hit shots and who can do the most with um, the offensive have right now, right now, LSU's leading scorer, Tari Eason, 15 and a half points, seven and a half rebounds a game. Um, he's a, a six, eight, two fifteen type, the top 100 player or former top 100 player. He's a sophomore. Darius days feels like he's, he's LSU's John Fulkerson. I feel like Darius days has been there a million years. Um, he's still beating around in his six, seven, two forty five frame, 14 points, eight boards. And of course now you also have Xavier Pinson, who's a former Missouri player at point guard who's averaging 11 points, four and a half assists and, and three rebounds a game. So they, they have a, they have an experienced team, but they don't have a lot of experience in terms of guys that were here on the roster last year for LSU, because looking at the names, like I recognize a lot of the names, but only looking at the, the sports reference here, only 30% of their minutes played return from last year and 22% of the scoring. So uh, they have, they have guys that returned, 
not very many though that that were key players except for Darius Days, and they, I recognize some of his other names, but a lot of them were transfers. Like Terry Eason uh, put at Cincinnati, so he played Tennessee last year, if I remember. Yeah, they they he played Tennessee last year. I'll have to go back and see what he did that game, but he transferred from Cincinnati. Um, you have Efton Reed, who's a freshman. You have a, a couple other freshmen that are playing significant minutes, like uh, Brandon Murray and Alex Fudge. So you you this game is. I guess kind of similar to Tennessee, like you have starters and you return some guys who are, you know, have experience in college basketball, but how much of these guys really played together? And again, I, I, I think LSU is a bit of a paper tiger, just the same way. I think Kentucky is a bit of a, a paper tiger, which, you know, LSU just beat them. I, I, I agree with you. I think the SEC is better than the ACC, but I don't really know how much that's saying this year to be fair, but I, I do think the SEC is still a quality program. They're quality conference. I think it's just a conference that has a lot of teams that, need to figure their identity out, you know, and we're in, again, we're in early January. So there's plenty of time to do that. But I think there's, there's a lot of teams, with a lot of upside of potential in the sec and boy, howdy Auburn, Auburn sure is looking like the best team in the conference right now. That's of course, Tennessee's luck. Um, I mean, they only had to play once this year, thankfully, but of course it's, it's Bruce Pearl, you know, going out there and killing it again. But gee, we'll, we'll see how this game goes. There's a lot of different talking points that you know we, we could have covered for the Ole Miss game too. Like yeah, I, I mentioned briefly about Powell playing more than Bailey. I would like to see if that continues in this game or, or you know what happens. But um, there's a lot I could we could keep talking about. But I, I kind of want to keep this under an hour and a half. <laughs> We're already at like the hour mark, and we haven't touched on the Lady Balls game. But that, I wanted to get to that very quickly here in the last few minutes before we go too long. But Gene, they just went final a little while ago as we're recording this. Um, a very dominating win for the Lady Vols. They, they trailed 21-20 after the first quarter, Gene. And they went on to allow a grand total of 24 points the rest of the game. And they won 73-45. Jordan Horston goes out and, and gets a double-double. 18 points, 13 rebounds, 4 assists, only 1 turnover. Uh, Tamari Key had a career high 11 blocks along with nine points and six rebounds. And, and literally every player, I don't know why Texas A&M kept trying to score in the paint because they had no one who could score on her and, and she would just stand there and block every shot. I was watching some highlights while we we're talking or watching some of the plays while we we're, were talking and I got to watch the first half before we recorded. It was ridiculous. You know, just, she was just blocking shot, blocking shot, shot after shot, after shot. She played 23 minutes and had 11 blocks in 23 minutes. I mean, that's incredible. And then she was a perfect four or four from the floor. Uh, you said, I think you, you said it perfectly. I think Gene, before we started recording that this is what a team, what a team looks like when players know their role and they play that role well. And I think that's, that was very well said, especially with Horston and with key. And now with Ray Burrell coming back, she, she ended up playing 17 minutes in this game. A lot of that was late, but she played 17 minutes, had nine points, three rebounds, two assists in this game. Uh, she was four of 11 from the floor and one of five from three. So, you know, again, so still trying to knock the rust off a little bit, but still wasn't bad in this game. But gee, man, they, that was a ranked Texas A&M squad. Who, again, they're not the same type of Texas A&M that we've seen in years past. And they're they're still a good quality team, though. They're a top 25 team, and I think they'll be an NCAA tournament team. Man, they've all just warmed down. I mean, again, it was 21-20. Tennessee trailed after the first quarter. They outscored them 22-7 the second 20 to 14, the third, and they allowed three points in the fourth quarter. Three points. That's incredible. So this team, much like the men's team, built on defense, but the, this team has some bona fide talent on offense too that I, that I trust more than I do to this team at this point. I think you could compare Horston to Vescovy in terms of 
rebounding well for their size and just being a, a really good shooter or just really good player overall. That, that That's your kind of main offense right now until Ray Burrell comes back. And then you have Jordan Walker, who I think has been a really good point guard this year for the Lady Vols now that she looks like she's fully healthy and is kind of playing more up to speed. Alexis Dye has been playing her role very well. She had six points, seven boards in this game, three assists as well. I mean, Gene, this, this is just a team that is really kind of rolling on all cylinders. And I, I, like the men's team, I don't think they've hit their ceiling yet because I, you know, they've been playing without Ray Burrell and she's just now coming back. And I think that her coming back is just added what this team has been missing. And that's a, 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 you know, opening up the offense a little more. They've been able to score 70 points in the two games that she's played. And they hadn't done that a whole lot before she came back and has been eligible here. So, you know, we can just wrap up the show, talk about that a little bit. Cause I think that, man, that, that was an impressive win. Again, I think A&M is, is not as good as it have been, but they're still a top, you know, 40 type of team and Leia Vols just laid a smackdown on him at home. Yeah. I, I kind of laughed when I was looking at, I was looking over the stats because I, I looked at um, the scoring and the shots and it, I, I saw, I saw that Horson was seven of 23 from the, from the field. Mm-hmm. And it just reminded me of the episode of Fresh Prince where <laughs> Will Smith was just running up and down the court, just shooting every single time, and it's just a weird visual. But um, yeah, it was um, you know obviously start to finish a really dominating win over a top twenty-five team, and you know, and some sometimes unfortunately in women's basketball, it's a, it's a case of twenty-five teams that need to be ranked. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you have yeah. to rank twenty-five. Uh, there may not always be 25 rankable teams, but um, yeah, I mean, like that was a, a really good win. I mean, anytime that your, your your players can do exactly what their roles are, um, then you're you're going to be good. Everybody, anytime that everybody understands what they're being asked to do, and look, this wasn't even a good game for them when they won by 30. I mean, if you just look at some of the things that happened, I mean, the problem was A&M just couldn't score because uh, Key was blocking everything. When she didn't, Horson was blocking it. 14 block shots, I mean, that's got to gotta be close to some sort of record against some sort of quality opponent. I get it. You could probably block 20 shots against UTC or whatever, but, um, but like, then to block 14 shots against a team, the caliber, a, a top 25 opponent, like, when you do stuff matters, to me, specifically. Yes. Um, right. Yes. And when you do stuff, and to in a high-profile game that was on that was nationally televised, and Tamari Key has a block party, um, Horston knocks some of the rust off. She's going to get better. I mean, I'm, I was obviously joking about the whole uh, Will Smith stuff, but I mean, look, seven to twenty-three is seven to twenty-three, and look, I think that they're a little bit. I don't know. I. I Look, I'll say it because nobody else is going to say it. I don't know what they are offensively. I think there's a lot more similarities between the men and the women than we want to give credit to. But when you look at just that Tennessee, that Lady Vols team, um, like if we're going to talk about them, let's talk about them. Like they scored 73 points on 74 shots. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't pay attention to that. You're right. They did, though. Yeah, like there are still things and even when they even when they get when when Burrell gets settled back in cuz that's your score a lot of 
when I watched them play, I went and saw them play against UTC last week. When I watched them play, one of the first things I really realized was there's somebody that has to do the work to get a lot of these other players' shots. Now, Horston wasn't available that game, but she's the person who, look, like the 23 shots will go down. Like, I'm not concerned about that. But, like, there's a person, be it Walker, um, be it Miles, be it Horston, even Burrell, when she fully gets back in the mix, they're going to have to create those shots for other people because they got a lot of people whose primary goal, I mean, whose offense of production is predicated off of somebody doing all the work for them. They just kind of get to, you know, to profit at the end. Um, I think they're fine. I think defensively they're elite. Offensively, they'll figure some stuff out. They are who they are. I think I think Burrell's obviously a, a talented offensive player. Um, I think Horston is ex- uber talented. I don't think people appreciate how good of a player that she truly, truly is. Like that's that's not a team that has a ton of offensive talent. It's not. And for her, to, when for her to kind of keep you know keep things afloat. When Burrell wasn't there, like what she did when Burrell left, I don't think people understand how impressive that was. I mean, it wasn't like Burrell. I mean, they just barely started the season. Like this is when you start to see a little bit more about what this Tennessee team is because Burrell played, what, 10, like 15 minutes, Mm -hmm. 15, 20 minutes before she got hurt. And so she's trying to knock some stuff off. Like we still haven't seen what this team – it's going to look like when it meshes together. But even with that being said, everybody on that team knows what they're being asked to do. Everybody, from Horston to Saunders and everybody in between. They all know when they get on the court what they need to do. And that's nothing but coaching right there. That is nothing but what Kelly Harper's been able to do to get those people and, and her staff have been able to do mm-hmm. to get every player on that team to understand their role. Like they're all good. I was impressed, especially by how just how badly they beat down that team, how they dominated defensively, how how they controlled every aspect of that game. They'll get better offensively. I think they kind of are what they are offensively, which is not elite, but they're good. Uh, of course, is a great player. They'll figure all this other stuff out, man. And of, of course, key blocks everything. Yeah, I, I think if there was a a type of Kim Palm stuff for women's game, which I think the, there is the her hoop stats, but I don't, I don't, I'm not a subscriber to it. I probably should, but I feel like Tennessee would have the number one like easily defensive efficiency in women's basketball right now. I, I can't think of a team that would be better than them. Um, you asked about, you said you brought up about Tamari Key's eleven blocks. It's actually the second most in a game period in Lay of All history. The the single game record is Kelly Kane back in, in twenty ten against LSU. So again, against the SEC school. So that's Lay of Balls, like you said, it matters when you do it. The the the, the teams uh, Tamari Key has number two, number three, and number four most blocks in a single game. Tonight it was against Texas A and M. she had ten against Florida. And as last season, I think she may have had, yeah, she had 10 this year too against, it uh, wasn't an SEC team though. And then she also had nine against South Carolina. So all her, all hers has been against SEC schools and she had seven against Kentucky um, a couple years ago too. So again, like you said, it matters, it, it matters more when you do it, who you do it against and when you do it, 
Mantamari has been, she hasn't just been doing it against, you know, the low team. She's been doing it against these, you know, SEC teams and power five teams too. Gene, if you had to guess, who's the, uh, who, who, who do you think is the career block leader for Lady Balls? Brittany Jackson. No, I'm just playing. Um, <laughs> wow. I was, uh, I was, I was actually surprised at who it was. My, my guess would have been either Kelly Kate or Michelle Snow. Those aren't the answers though. I, I was gonna I was actually gonna say Michelle Snow, but it's gotta be somebody who was just consistently good. Um, like that's usually how these awards kind of work their way out. It's not the people who may be more memorable as shot blockers. Uh it, it's somebody who was just con- consistently maybe blocking fifty, sixty, seventy shots a year. Um You got me, man. You got me. It's Candace, two hundred two hundred seventy-five okay. in her career. Okay, and yeah. I, and and what helps her out in that? Again, I'm not surprised. Like that's mm-hmm. a, that's a player who plays from day one. Yep. Until yep. the day she's done. But with her size and the fact she plays so many different positions, I'm not the least bit surprised that that's the answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's funny. I was actually thinking. I'm like the way he's asking this question. It's got to be somebody like Shamika Holesclaw, but Candace never popped up in my mind. But, um, but yeah, with her size at six three, with those long arms, mm-hmm. um, and her ability to play so many different positions, I'm not the least bit surprised. Like that's that's a credit to longevity, and a lot of war, of awards are a lot of school records are longevity. Yeah, records. Yeah, you know, right. like that's like they're well, this kid, like you know, I, I saw a kid from UTC. He set the three-point record last night for UTC. Yeah, I saw that. He beat. He beat. You know, he's been there since like the '80s. Um, I'll just side, I think he he's in his sixth year with the program. Okay, so he's and they, for for UTC. <laughs> yeah, no, he, I'm, he redshirted Fulkerson's first year. Well, there you go. The year, like the the year that he went to, yeah, like <laughs> the year that ten, that UTC went up there and played Tennessee. Um, well, I guess that was the 16-17 season. That was Fulkerson's true freshman year. This kid redshirted that year. Um, the two kids that he beat, the kid that he beat out last night and the kid who's in third place, they each played two years. Wow. And this kid's in his fifth year because of obviously the COVID year. Um, he probably would have actually beat it, beat the record last year, but uh, I think he missed, he missed a couple games, and so he beat it this year, but – but yeah, I mean, a lot of these awards are kind of longevity awards, um, so I'm not the least bit surprised because, like, you look, you've got to play to set records. Mm-hmm. And Candace Parker was playing from the moment that she stepped on this, the moment that she was eligible to play for the University of Tennessee. I feel like there. I'm sorry if I forgot, but I feel like there was something that maybe messed up her first year. Maybe it was an injury or something. But from the moment she started playing. For the Lady Vols, she was productive, and that shows it. Yeah, she uh, she had to redshirt her first season due to a knee injury that she suffered in a summer league game. That's a good good memory there, Gene. I'd forget about that. It, it comes and goes, man. <laughs> it really does. Yeah, don't forget she was uh, she also won the WNBA Defensive Player of the Year in 2020. So I mean, yeah, she again that's just something that's carried over her entire career. She's just been a really good uh, defensive player. She was a WNBA all defensive second team a couple years as well so I mean she's just you know again always been just a really good defender but yeah I was a little surprised to see that she was the career blocks leader Tamari's gonna pass her I mean it's Tamari already has 64 this season which is 
right outside the top 10 in a single season. And, and there's like, they're halfway, they're not even halfway through the year. So she's going <laughs> to, Tamari's going to break that record at, at some point here soon. She, she came into this year with 158 and is already over 200 in the season. So, I mean, she may even break it this year. She, she's just having a phenomenal year as a, as a shot blocker because she's taller than everybody else. And she's, I think, you know, has started to develop more. It is becoming more of the player that I think, you know, we thought she could be, and she's just a junior. Like the thing, like if she doesn't break it this year, she has a whole, you know, assuming she stays healthy, she has a whole nother year yet next year to get there. So anyway, well, yeah, I just wanted clear. to go ahead. She yeah. could get that COVID. She could get that COVID year That's back true. too. She could just be a sophomore. That's <laughs> true. It's hard to, yeah, it's hard yeah, to keep track let's, of, let's, of, let's, of that. Let's be honest. You know, like, Tomorrow Key's not going to stay for five years. Nah, like, that's a girl who needs to go make the money that she's going to make professionally, with, mm-hmm. be it the WNBA um, or overseas or both, as a mm-hmm. lot of players do. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not a player. I mean, look, if she loves Tennessee that much, so be it. But it's, this isn't a – this is a, this is not a Fulkerson situation where no. you kind of you kind of realize that your career is, for the most part, done after. Excuse me, after your college career ends, like that girl's going to. She's talented. De- she's she's elite defensively. She's a talented player, but she has an elite skill, and there's something to be said for that. Like if you have an elite skill, that'll get you a long way in life. Be it like Steph Curry shooting threes, um, you know, like. Matumbo blocking shots. Mm-hmm. If you have Dennis Rodman with rebounds, if you have one elite skill, that'll that'll keep you around a sport a little bit longer. Uh, you can make a lot of money with that elite skill if you realize that you have that skill. She certainly has that with blocking shots. Yeah, that she does. Yeah. But I think that'll be where we go ahead and wrap up this podcast. Uh, we will have plenty to talk about in the coming days again as – Tennessee goes to take on LSU this weekend. And then also Lady Vols take on Ole Miss this weekend. So it feels like Tennessee, the, both the men's and women's teams are playing the same teams, like very close to each other on the schedule. So uh, Lady Vols will take on Ole Miss. Tennessee takes on LSU. Uh, I have a lot more faith in one of those teams winning than I do the other. It's not the men's team I have a lot of faith in. So <laughs> we'll see what happens uh, next time we talk, Gene. But thank you all for tuning in. Again, whether it's on YouTube, whether it's uh, on your, your phone, on your computer, listening to a podcast, or watching the sh- technically watching the show on YouTube, however it is, thank you all so much. Uh, be on the lookout. I'll have a, another fall basketball fever breakdown for the LSU game. Did get one for Ole Miss. Uh, just had family in town and stuff. Then also, again, ended up having Ole Miss having COVID stuff and everything. So I just didn't feel like whatever I was going to do was going to be, you know, reflective of how that game was going to go. More or less may have may have been from my thoughts on it beforehand. But regardless, I'll have another one of those to give you some, you know, a, a good kind of 10, 15 minute preview of what to expect for the Tennessee LSU game sometime probably Friday um, before the tip off on Saturday for y'all to, to check it out kind of 24 hours uh, before that. So again, thank you all for listening. Uh, like the video, subscribe to the YouTube, subscribe to the podcast. Signing off for Gene, I am Nathaniel, and this has been another episode of the Vol Basketball Fever Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Vol Basketball Fever Podcast. Subscribe to the show so you'll never miss another episode.